Thanks for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. And just to update you, thanks in large part to many of you, uh, we've been able to purchase a new home in central Missoula. And there's a lot of work ahead of us when it comes to making another warehouse our church home. And you can continue to contribute to remodel and renovation funds at achurchbuilding.com. But we just want to express to you how grateful we are for your support. And we hope that this resource you're about to listen to will be a blessing for you as well. But let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your loving kindness to us. Um, We're just as we appreciate uh, the person who sends the text of encouragement or the unsolicited affirmation from someone we love. Your word reminds us of your goodness to us whenever we encounter it. And so, Lord, help our hearts to respond in a way that you would have us, that we would respond with repentance and worship and conviction. We pray all this in your name. Amen. So uh, you can open your Bibles to Proverbs 27. We're nearing the end of our study in Proverbs. And I read a humorous story in a book this week by the historian John Meacham. And he recounted an encounter between two men, Franklin Delano Roosevelt and Winston Churchill. One, the President of the United States of America, and the other, the Prime Minister of Great Britain. The year was 1941. And to put that in context, they were nearing what would become the halfway point of World War II. And Winston Churchill was in America at the White House for a diplomatic visit over Christmas time. One early morning, uh, FDR went and knocked on Winston Churchill's door and was invited in, only to find the great monolithic Winston Churchill standing pacing in his room, naked, fresh out of the bath. And so Roosevelt sheepishly began to shut the door, but was stopped when the famous British diplomat chuckled back and said, you see, Mr. President, I have nothing to hide from you. (laughs) And in a world where political relationships were riddled with strife, duplicity, secrets, and insincerity, Meacham, the historian, wanted to highlight this unique and intimate friendship which stood out in the contrast of a dark and trying season. A friendship which he argued sustained these two men through all of the biggest trials of taking two of the world's largest superpowers through the bloodiest war up until that point. And both of the men's families have reflected on this true and honest friendship and said that each other was a big boon when they encountered sorrow and anxiety in the pace of the war. As the world literally waged war around them, it was in the confines of this friendship that Churchill wrote to Roosevelt saying this. He said, our friendship is the rock on which I build for the future of the world so long as I am one of the builders. And it was amidst this darkness, this trauma, this loss, and this heartache that a friendship shaped not only the geopolitical landscape, but it shaped the lives of two men in a profound way. Reflecting on friendship in his book, The Four Loves, C.S. Lewis said that the primary question, the platform of friendship, as opposed to any other love, is the question, do you see the same truth? Or to put it another way, he says, do you care about the same truth. 
what led to a unique relationship between FDR and Churchill was not only a world at war, but they sh- that they shared a truth that freedom trumped tyranny and that evil needed to be resisted. But for us today, in this room, in your work, with your families, your study groups, and your neighbors, what is the truth that you have to share in the darkest night? Our world clamors for stories of friendship and intimacy like the one we just laughed at. But what is the truth and care which takes casual relationships and acquaintances and pulls it into the realm of true friendship, friendship which endures when things are hard? And the book of Proverbs wants to prepare us for this tension by calling us to turn to the Lord. As we've been working through the book of Proverbs, we've seen this constant reminder that we are to not lean on our own understandings, but in all our ways acknowledge the Lord, to see that God has exercised his sovereign power so that we can trust in him. That when things look to be foolish by the world's perspective, but wise in God's, we can humble ourselves and trust God, that he is able to care for us. And as part of God's sovereign care, he gives us the gift of gospel-centered friendships. That is, friendships shaped by the good news of Jesus Christ. The good news that Jesus did everything required to save sinners and restore us to God. And it's this friendship that we are going to be looking at today in Proverbs 27. And we're going to see this in two parts. First, in verses 5 through 7, we're going to see how to be friended. That is, how can we prepare for friends who help us to endure and pull us into a sweet relationship of intimacy? It prepares us to encounter the good friend. But secondly, in verses 8 through 10, we are going to see how to befriend That is, how can we act as the good friend? How can we build a community as church, as brothers, as sisters, as members, which protects and displays the care and comfort of true friendship? And this is why God's wisdom is so incredibly good, why I love the book of Proverbs, because what Proverbs is showing is that most of us have a pie chart And we carve out, for the most part, a good section. Here you are on Sunday on a wonderful late summer, early fall morning. Your pie chart says this much belongs to God, and this is good, and we want to think through things through God's perspective. But what Proverbs shows is the whole pie chart for the Christian belongs to God. Even our friendships are things that God wants us to think in light of who he is. He cares not only who our friends are, but he desires that your relationship with your friends be rewarding, sweet, and satisfying. But we tend to do is we tend to look at those things and say, well, I know what it takes to build a relationship that's sweet, rewarding, and satisfying. But today, Solomon would have us take whatever our ideas of friendship are, and just for this 45 minutes, maybe wishful thinking, to just set it on a shelf and to see what the Bible has to say about friendship, what the God who created us as relational beings says about its nature, a God who sent his son to be a friend of sinners. And this is our first point this morning. This is how to be friended, how to be friended. For many of us, entering a friendship these days is as easy as clicking accept, but to actually be the recipient of a good friendship is a skill 
that Solomon wants to be, you to be equipped for. We spend a lot of time in the church preparing young couples for pre-marriage, equipping and counseling them for the challenges that accompany the unique intimacy of marriage. But we often gloss over the same challenges, the same passages, and the same weight that the Bible provides for friends. And this is part of the reason why the, there's a lot of singles who often and historically have felt out of place in the church. It's not because the Bible doesn't care about singleness. It's because the church often doesn't preach about gospel-centered friendship. There's a sphere of intimacy that is available to all, even those who are single. And it's this interesting thing that, so I'm making this up as we go. When we do pre-marriage, not the whole sermon is made up as we go, I promise. Uh, just this one portion is we often see people in their first year, five years, 10 years, struggle in their marriage, naturally. And I think part of that problem is, is the church spends a lot of effort trying to do pre-marriage counseling. But I think we've unfortunately reversed something which the Bible prioritizes, and that is that we teach someone to be a husband or a wife before we ever teach them how to be a friend. But all marriage is, is being a friend in a lifelong covenant before God, till death do you part. We pound our fist, be a disciple, be a discipler. But when it's stripped from friendship, all we have are academic book studies and discussion groups. But here, what God has prepared for us in Proverbs chapter 27 is a pre-friendship course. A course that regardless of who you are and what your relational status is, God wants to equip you to have wonderfully redemptive, intimate friendship with another according to the gospel. And we see this in verses 5 through 7 of Proverbs 27. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. One who is full loathes honey. But to one who is hungry, everything bitter is sweet. So this is why we need God's word. Because what we see is that this friendship that is better, that is sweet, that is satisfying, is built on paradoxes. If I were to ask you what you preferred in friendship, and I held up Dave and Kyle, and I said, here's the deal. Kyle's going to rebuke you, wound you, and be bitter, and Dave is going to love you, kiss you, and have honey. And many of us would maybe be like, well, the kisses, maybe I'll take the bitter, wounding. Um, but when we look at that, we would often choose the loving, sweet kisses of a friend over the bitter rebuking wounds of someone else. But the paradox of Proverbs is that appearances aren't always what they seem. Solomon wants us to take our presuppositions of friendship and hold it up to the light of his word and to see what's actually inside of it. And here we see that a friend who is willing to rebuke you, that is to challenge, to correct with firmness, in an observable way, is far better than a friend whose love is hidden. That is to say, it's easy to be a friend who you say, well, how does that friend love me? 
And you look around and you see, well, he hasn't not loved me, right? He hasn't rebuked me. That's a telltale sign that maybe he doesn't love me. But you look and you say, well, I can't see anything. <laughs> it's, he, they're just there. And he's saying better to have a friend who is openly, visibly acting in love, even if it's firm, than a friend to where they might not offend you, but there's nothing remarkable about that friendship at all. Here we see that there are wounds which are faithful. While we might think that profuse and endless affirmations stem from a pure and loving heart, those flattering words often conceal an enemy that is someone who is not for us but against us. But the wounds of a friend are faithful. How faithful? That's the exact same word David uses in Psalm 19 to say that the testimony of God's word is sure, it is faithful, it is never-ending, it is meant to invite in. But if we want a friend who is faithful like God is faithful, that's the true meaningful friendship we seek, we must realize that this requires a posture of humility. We must be humble enough to see ourselves as God sees us and how others see us through their own lens that God gave them. We often need rebuke. We often need correction. We often need adjustment. Why? Prepare yourselves for this. You're not God. You are not perfect. You are not infinite. You are not omniscient. You are not omnipresent. And by that fact, you are imperfect. You need someone's help. You see, if we were God, if we were so remarkably perfect, this would be the most foolish friendship we could ever endure. Who would subject themselves to this kind of word, this kind of inspection, this kind of relationship if we were totally above board in every respect? This would be setting yourself up for relational strife and frustration at every turn. But God is after your joy because he knows your frame. He knows your need. Friendship which sees others as God sees us is what we need. And you want to know the true test of friendship? It's the friend who's willing to tell you you have something in your teeth. Isn't that true? We've all been places with acquaintances and business partnerships, and you might see that kale salad just wedged right there for like a third breakfast, sitting there waiting. And you always have that debate, right? What do I do? And you begin to become like beautiful mind type equations start playing in your mind where you're trying to assess how well do you know this person? What's the level of your relationship? We only really bring that to somebody when we are comfortable enough with them that we know how they're going to respond. And without that kind of relationship, we'd let that, people, that person go on thinking that they're totally fine. But a true friend, a good friend, risks the awkwardness by saying, you've got something in your teeth. And the recipient might be embarrassed, but ultimately they realize that that momentary discomfort, that momentary shame, that momentary feeling of foolishness was worth it. So they don't continue to make a fool of themselves. As you prepare for a friend 
Are you preparing for a friend who not only comments on the state of your teeth, but the state of your soul? We live in a world where there's something being championed called expressive individualism. This expressive individualism is this idea that the only person who knows best, the only person who truly understands you, the only person who knows how to get you where you want to go is exclusively one's own self. But not only does this present a wrong-headed arrogance about our ability to perceive ourself, we can't see our teeth, we can't see our teeth, but we think we know what's best for us in the metaphysical landscape of the world. It promotes yourself as a sort of sovereign God, that you are the one who knows all things, and everyone else needs to either get in line or they're a hurdle. But additionally, it limits your joy in relationships. To think that you are the grand poobah of everything crushes the ability to experience true friendship. The times when I feel most friended by my wife or my close friends are when they prove that they know me better than I know myself. Have you ever had that moment? And if that's wonderful, then we already begin to see the danger of expressive individualism. There are times where my wife offers me a gesture or a word which if I just saw on paper, I would say is so unfitting. I would never need that. But when she does it, it's exactly what I needed. I feel seen. I feel known. I feel cared for. To think your own heart is the expert and sole counselor for your life is to put yourself in a lonely place. And what happens in this culture and what we need to be prepared to experience in our own hearts and in our own lives if we want to apply this text is when we encounter people who speak up in a way that feels like a critique of us or which wounds us unexpectedly, what we do is we cut them out of our life often with great applause from those who are watching. We label them as toxic, unsupportive, and unloving. But have you ever thought of the other side of the coin? What is it that you're actually affirming when that happens? If we only cultivate friends who cover us in self-affirming kisses, but who are never allowed to actually disagree with us, have we ever actually loved another? Or are we only finding new ways to love ourselves? Are we actually friends with that person or do we enjoy and accept that person only to the degree that they affirm us? Many of us think we desire sincere friendships, but the truth is many of us just want fans. Fans are rich and profuse with kisses, but fans don't fill stadiums when you have a losing record. Fans will praise you when things are good, but when things are difficult, they're nowhere to be found. Fans jump to the newest celebrity as soon as you lose your luster and as soon as you become difficult to befriend. But here, we learn to truly love another by treating and empowering their voice as a friend who sees us instead of merely as a fan who must adore us as God. Now, there are oppressive people. There are toxic people, and we'll talk about that in a bit. But from biblical perspective, they're never called friends. They're called fools. It's really clear to identify those if we're reading the Bible rightly. But here Solomon wants to prepare you for this true friendship by telling you that what seems bitter might actually be sweet. 
What seems hard to hear might actually be the gentlest form of love. What seems to actually hurt might actually be the sign of the nearness of this friend. Charles Bridges commented on his own need for this when he said this, What is the friend who will be a real blessing to my soul? Is it one that will humor my fancies and flatter my vanity? This comes far short of my requirement. I am a poor, straying sinner with a wayward will and a blinded heart, going wrong at every step. The friend for my case is one who will watch over me with open rebuke, not always public, but with a free and open heart, a reprover when needful, not a flatterer. The genuineness of friendship without this mark is more than doubtful. Its usefulness is utterly paralyzed. One thing I often say to those who are dating or considering marriage is to look at the postures of husbands and wives that the Bible promotes. The Bible gives us how we are to act, how we are to embody Christ-likeness, depending upon who we are in that relationship. Husbands are called to be the head of their wife as Christ is the head of their church, to lay down their lives in sacrificial ways. Wives are called to help, to motivate, to partner with their husbands in pursuit of God's glory as Eve did with Adam or as Zipporah did with Moses to take action when the husband is blind and bumbling and not following God how he should. And so I always say to people when they look at these weighty things is to look at the person you're with and to say, do I trust that person to do this well? You have that choice. Don't trust a man to be your head who's not trustworthy to love you like Jesus does. You have that choice. That's what a husband does. If that person won't do it, then they probably aren't fit to be a husband. Husbands, don't covenant yourself to a lady who you don't trust to help you love Jesus. If you don't trust her to help you love Jesus, she's not fit to be a wife. You don't have to do that. Don't choose it. But here, those same principles apply to friendship universally. Just as we see how husbands are to love wives and wives are to love husbands, here we see how friends are to love friends. Don't trust a friend to rebuke you and to wound you who doesn't rebuke and wound with a clear understanding of sin and the gospel. Don't choose that friendship. If you look at this and you look at your friends and you say, I don't trust any of my friends to do this in a way that honors the Lord and loves me, then that might be God's wisdom that you don't have good friends. But instead, to see biblically a friend who you would accept these kind of difficult, hard words from is to find a friend that endures, a friend that cares a friend that, like Jesus, lays down his life for the sake of you. And the context of Solomon's words on friendship is to the people of Israel who were bound together by loyalty to the God who saved them, who protected them, who dwelt in their midst. And that's the idea of what gospel-centered friendship is. It looks at the other person that is with us, but it looks through the lens of God who has called broken people to himself through Jesus Christ. And so when we look at that individual, we see someone who is like us in our brokenness, but loved by God through Jesus. And when we see those relationships rightly, 
then we can begin to trust friendship as the Bible prescribes friendship. And we'll never be prepared for this without humility. But as verse 27 says, if we realize our limitations, then even what seems to be bitter will eventually be sweet. I've experienced this before. I had a season of life where my joking was generally crude or coarse. And one friend wrote me an email stressing, which seems weird that a friend would do that uh, versus just saying it, but it actually showed the amount of thought he put into this in wanting to be heard well. And he stressed the foolishness of my words. The witness those conversations in text or email or in person had on the church of Jesus. And I look back at that moment and that was this formative moment of what gospel-centered friendship looked like for me because I remembered the discomfort it produced, but I also remember the winsome words that were said. And so actually this week, I looked through my email and I found the email and I read it and it made me queasy. (laughs) It was so pointed, so direct, that here I am years later feeling like laid bare naked in front of it. And yet, what had happened in that time is in looking back, what I remembered of that encounter was not primarily the barb of the rebuke, but the blessing of being seen as God sees me. The blessing of having a brother risk an awkward conversation instead of risking a friend who was looking like a fool. It was wonderful and winsome, but it was weighty. And we might look at this and we might say, yeah, I want to be that friend. I want to have friends like that. But if that's you, you need to prepare yourself where these words on a page are more than just a metaphor and they become your reality. (laughs) That means you need to prepare for when you feel rebuked, when you feel wounded, when you feel like all you taste is bitter. But true friends... See, all of this paradox as worth it to lean into those moments. Paul himself did this with the church in Corinth in the New Testament. He spoke to them harsh word, a word that wounded them. He corrected this wickedness that was going on inside the church, and they felt the sting. He had this great relationship with this church who loved Paul, And his letter disrupted the peace and the comfort their relationship shared. But look at what Paul said about his motives. And so I want you to think about this. When you push into someone else's life, is this your motive? Because it should be. Here's Paul's motive behind his words in 2 Corinthians 2, verses 3 and 4. And I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love I have for you. Do you remember what we looked at a few weeks ago in Proverbs 24, verses 1 and 10, where we saw this? Or 10 and 11. If you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. Rescue those who are being taken away from death. Hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. 
If we want to be friends, we need to prepare for others to reach out to us when we are in danger, when we are not following Jesus. But we also need to be willing of ourselves reaching out into awkward and difficult situations for the sake of love. J.R.R. Tolkien, C.S. Lewis, and Charles Williams were a group of three friends known as the Inklings. And these wonderful, deep friendships that you could read many books, I think there's even a movie out on it now, just the nature of friendship that those three had was what sustained much of Tolkien's theme of friendship through the Lord of the Rings saga. And we can hear Tolkien's understanding of Proverbs in this wonderful scene between Sam, the hobbit who's helping Frodo, the ring bearer. And look at what Sam says. He says, you can trust us to stick to you through thick and thin to the bitter end. And you can trust us to keep any secret of yours closer than you keep it, than you yourself keep it. But you cannot trust us to let you face trouble alone and to go off without a word. We are your friends, Frodo. If you desire good friends, better friends, meaningful friends, Desire friends who are willing to do what scripture calls, who desire to bear one another's burdens and in so doing fulfill the law of Christ. That's the rich friendship that we need to be prepared for in the church. And this is where Solomon pivots a bit from focusing on how we receive friendship and turns to how we give friendship, the community of friendship. He moves from something which is a paradox of friendship to the proximity of friendship. In verses 8 and 10, he says this, Like a bird that strays from its nest is a man who strays from his home. Oil and perfume make the heart glad, and the sweetness of a friend comes from his earnest counsel. Do not forsake your friend and your father's friend. Do not go to your brother's house in the day of calamity. Better is a neighbor who is near than a brother who is far away. Here we see our second point this morning. This is how to befriend. How do we care for others? And it's true that there are both, uh, there's a ditch on both sides of biblical friendship that we need to avoid. The first was that expressive individualism that refuses to let anyone say anything that doesn't affirm the way you're living or what you dream about um, or your own desires. But there's another ditch which is just as dangerous, and that's a ditch which is always critical always rebuking, and never actually loving. You see, in any sphere of life, we always are prone to either license or legalism. Expressive individualism is license. It's that if we want to love somebody, we give them the license to pursue whatever they want, when they want, even if it's dangerous. But the other side is legalism, which is to say, okay, well, sin is bad. God has something right. And so wherever people are acting foolishly or not being mature, I'm going to come down like a hammer and I'm only and always going to critique what it is they're doing. And sometimes we as Christians know kind of culturally the dangers of licentiousness. And so what we do is we kind of baptize this sort of barbaric legalism in our friendship because we love truth. And we should love truth, but we should love truth as the Bible gives us truth. There are many times where we go to someone who is genuinely in a dangerous place, needs help, not following God, walking down the wrong path, and we use truth like a battering ram against whomever we will, thinking there's no consequences. We can deliver it as curtly, as abruptly, as carelessly, and say, well, this is God's truth. Deal with it. 
But what we see in verses like this is the nature of a community where truth is coupled with grace in a relationship, where correction comes in this passage from a friend as if it would from a family. How do we befriend? The main point of these verses is we befriend like a family. Solomon assumes that when calamity strikes, when things are hard, perhaps when rebuke is heavy, that you would long for your family. Why? Because there are few places where we can simultaneously be rebuked and wounded while also knowing how deeply we are loved than the family. It is this place of tension, of honest words which are weighty, but also the nearness of love which is wonderful. And that's why Solomon uses this illustration of a bird leaving a nest. The nest is where the bird is the safest and the most cared for. And so when he's using, you know, spread your wings and fly, it's not this admonition to go out into the world, little bird. He's saying, here is safety. Here is comfort. Here are people who love you. Do not wander from this friendship. Do not wander from this relationship. And no one can quite speak into my life like my wife because I know my wife loves me. She can be the most zealous for my sin. And yet I know on the other end is someone who's covenanted to love me like Jesus loves me. No one disciplines my son more than I do. No one wounds him in this sense more than I do. But my hope is that my son knows how much I love him. That when it comes to his friends or his teachers or his coaches, that he is assured above all those things that dad loves me more. But where family is distant, Solomon says, do not forsake your friends and your father's friends. This is an astounding paradox of gospel-centered friendship. This is wonderfully good news for those who are single, for those who are separated by family or by distance from their family, to those who feel alone. Solomon means to say that when life is hard, when family is far away, you are not alone that you do not need to spend so much time, money, and energy in order to get home in order of receiving care. But instead, you should be part of a community of friends who love you and care for you with that exact same tension of truth and grace as your very family. In fact, look at what Solomon says in Proverbs 17, verse 17. A friend loves at all times and a brother is born for adversity. You see what Solomon's doing in these parallels? He is equating the love of a friend to the blood relationship of a brother. Just as in the midst of adversity, your blood family is there to love you and care for you, so too should gospel-centered friendships be able to care for you. Today, we've got all of our kids in here and I long for the children of our church to treasure Proverbs 27, 10, that in the day of hardship, they do not need to forsake the, their friends and the friends of their father and their mother. 
in the church, we ought to care for the children of our friends the same way their parents do. Gospel-centered friendship means we see the kids of our friends as our own kids. That is the wonderful gift of the church, that it binds us together with a new set of relationships, that we get to care for them with their parents, that we take a sense of responsibility. And so to those children who are here, do you parents, or do you, not parents, hopefully you love your kids, um, but parents to other children and single individuals, college students, do you look at these kids and say, I want to be a friend like that. I want to be a role model like that. I want to be a family like that. Historically, our church has proven two things, that we are good at producing children and that we are constantly shorthanded in kids' ministry. A gospel-centered church ought not to have that problem because we see it as not babysitting. We see it as going and humbly, prayerfully building a relationship with a young person made in the image of God so that when calamity strikes, they are not forsaken. But they have counselors. They have spiritual brothers and sisters and aunts and uncles and mothers and fathers who care for them. I know one of our elders, when he purchased a phone for his son, pre-programmed all of his fellow elders' contact information into his phone because he wanted his son to know from the get-go that if you're in trouble, if you need to talk, these are men who care for you. This is who you call at two in the morning when you were somewhere you shouldn't be and you're scared to call dad, call Daniel. Call Johnny. Call Tyler. When there are things that are difficult and you don't know what to do, kids who are in here today, look at who your parents are talking to afterwards. And parents, here's the test of your friendship. If this makes you uncomfortable, probably don't be friends with that individual. But kids, look at who your parents are talking to. See them and know right now that the Bible commands them to love you like this to care for you like this. When you are alone, when you are scared, when calamity strikes, do not forsake the friends of your parents. Friends of parents. This is what the Bible holds out for you in a healthy church. Are you willing to do it in all of your brokenness, but in all of your zeal? We fight for gospel-shaped friendships with a gospel-shaped heart. Look at Proverbs 27, verse 9. So where does this, when someone approaches you, whether it's a kid or whether it's a peer, and they come to you in this trial, we don't know the trial, we don't know the calamity, if it's something external, if it's a foolish decision, but there's something wrong. How do we respond when they come to us? Verse 9. Oil and perfume make the heart glad, and the sweetness of a friend comes from his earnest counsel. So depending upon whatever translation you guys have in front of you, verse 9 can translate it a couple ways because it says something really unique. It literally says that the sweetness of a friend comes from his nefesh, is the Hebrew word. And nefesh is the Hebrew word for spirit, the soul, the innermost being of the individual. What makes for sweet friendships, friendships which soothe like sweet oil, is the heart 
of the friend. A heart which openly and eagerly wants to counsel and care for others the same way they have been cared for by Jesus. Gospel-centered friendship is not harming people with correction and simply saying, get over it. Not simply saying, duh, it was stupid, this is the consequence. Gospel-centered friendship humbly moves towards others with grace and truth like Jesus did. Notice how Jesus broke onto the scene in John chapter 1. John chapter 1, verses 14 and 17. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him. and He cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace and truth. Upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So we see this wonderful tension in Jesus. If you're wondering what the tension is of gospel centered friendship, you must know Jesus. Jesus came like light to illuminate sin. So much so that John himself says that, like, when you turn on lights in a room and the bugs scatter, that's what sinners did before Jesus. He did not let them hide in their sin. And yet he did so with grace and truth. Jesus made sin feel dangerous and repentant sinners feel safe. That is the beauty of friending people through Jesus Christ. Law came through Moses. It was good to show us where we failed Jesus came to reveal our weakness, but also to reveal relief. That our brokenness could be solved by his perfection. That the promise of forgiveness was finally here. That the hope of real and true change was here in Jesus Christ. And it's this grace and truth, this earnest counsel from which the sweetness of a community is able to do that. You see, if all we do is rebuke and wound without putting on grace and truth, then we are not doing this biblically. But it's when we experience a new soul, an earnest soul, through Jesus Christ, that we do this not in this wonderful desire to be stronger in seeing another sin and to bludgeon them into their own foolishness, but instead to do it humbly and winsomely. And so I want to close with just three practical points here when it comes to giving earnest counsel from our heart. How do we become friends like this? First, Be willing to speak from the heart and to the heart. Much of our friendships revolve around cultural things, which is kind of what Lewis talked about, right? Who do we hunt with? Who do we go to school with? Who do we share interests and hobbies with? But to go to where Lewis lands the plane and to pick up where Solomon picks up here, what lies at the center of Christian friendship is a heart changed by Jesus. With your football friends, where does the conversation inevitably end up? There's a right answer. Football. With your hunting friends, you get to hunting. With your mom friends, you get to parenting. With your work friends, you get to talking about your boss. With your Christian friends, ought we not to get to the heart, the center of what makes us Christian? a heart made new by the blood of Jesus Christ. 
And I want to talk briefly to those in here who wrestle with friendship. There are some people for various reasons who wrestle with friendship, where it seems like a burden. It seems like something they don't need. And I think all of us, myself included, at varying times can be that individual. But if we don't understand the joy of true friendship, you leave on the table an experience of Jesus. Jesus came as a friend of sinners. Which means when you encounter a friend who loves you like this, when you love a friend like this, you get to, just as in marriage, just as in parenting, you get to live out a metaphor of our redemption. You get to experience in the flesh Jesus' love for you. You need to have friends like this. You don't need to have a thousand. Some of you can only have one or two. Some of you can have more. But this is what God made us for. So start these conversations today by when you talk with your friends, when you go to meet a new friend. Because in here, Lord willing, we at least all share having heard the gospel. I pray that you respond to that gospel. And go up and ask, what are you reading for your devotions? How's your walk with Jesus? How can I be praying for you? How's your anxiety? We have an elder meeting afterwards, so don't take too long talking about this because we need to leave eventually. But I want these conversations to happen here in church. Get to the heart. Second, a really important one, assume the best even when we expect the worst. When Paul gives a stunning portrait of love in 1 Corinthians, he says that love bears all things, believes all things, and hopes all things. When we begin to speak into the life of a brother or sister in Christ, we should hope all things. That's what Paul did in 2 Corinthians. He said, I wrote that I might bring you joy. He didn't write saying, these guys are the most hardened sinner in all the world. They're going to respond poorly to me. This is going to be miserable. He went in hoping that the gospel would do gospel things. He went in hoping that maybe they just needed to be made aware of this sin and they would be grateful of it. He went in hoping that when they would see it, that they would joyfully repent, that they would be wounded by the harshness of the word, but they would see the beauty of it. Brothers and sisters, do not bemoan the work of the gospel in your friendships. If we go towards someone, or if we constantly think and assume the worst, then what's going to happen is we are going to be slow to love. We are going to be slow to speak. We are going to be slow to encourage them. And when we do speak, it's going to come off with this lifeless legalism because we don't actually believe the gospel will help. But when we believe all things, we might encounter really difficult sin issues. You might encounter people who respond poorly, but we do so knowing that the gospel changes lives and this is exactly the way God has called us to love others. It makes us less intimidated to speak up and it makes us less offended when we're spoken to. Lastly, lead your friends to Jesus. Look at where this text ends. Proverbs 27, verse 10, the last part of verse 10. Better is a neighbor who is near than a brother who is far away. Look back, Proverbs 18, verse 24. A man of many companion may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. To create a culture of gospel friendship, we must first be shaped by a culture of the gospel. 
The goal of our friendships is not to hold up to our friends ourselves, but to hold up the friend who is better than ourselves. You will, we all will, even seeing a clear picture of gospel-centered friendship, we will fail, we will stumble, but Jesus never will. And we need to take our successes and our brokenness and hold up Christ as the true friend. And how neat, I think it's so needed to see this because it is easy to think of Jesus as God. That's who he is, he's God. And so we come with this sort of reverence. Even the metaphor of marriage, of Christ as husband, is still this kind of like formal role. But if we understand Christ as friend, that he came for us. He died in our place. He bore the wrath of our sins because he was our friend. We encounter how vast Jesus' heart is for us. And when we see Jesus' heart for us, then we turn to our friends and we say, come and see Jesus like this. This is the shared truth that shapes our circumstances. This is the rock on which we will build our own friendship as long as we labor on it. And it is this friendship, friendship in the gospel, that whether we are married or single, whether we are male or female, we enjoy the sweetness of each other while savoring the sweetness of Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that you birth in us, through your Holy Spirit, a clean vision of what it looks like to have Christ as our friend. I pray that in seeing our sin, in hearing your rebuke, rebuke that was given not only in your word, but rebuke of who we are as seen on the cross, that we deserve death, but as death which you as a friend came to die in our place for all who would believe in you. And Lord, in light of that, I pray for meaningful relationships in this room and in our homes and our workplaces. I pray that you help us be spelunkers of each other's hearts, seeing the places and where the gospel is cherished so that we might stand in awe and love Jesus more, seeing places where the gospel is underdeveloped so that we might humbly help others in the same way that we've been helped. We pray for our children and their friendships and our friendships with them. We pray for all of this in your name. Amen.